California, 2012. A late night home invasion goes terribly wrong as millionaire Silicon Valley venture capitalist Ravish Kumral asphyxiates from the packaging tape the intruders have used to cover his mouth. Several kilometers away, 26-year-old Lucas Anderson lies unconscious in the Santa Clara Valley Medical Center after being collected by paramedics. He has a blood alcohol level five times the legal limit and is on 15-minute watch by medical staff because of his intoxication level. Despite his seemingly ironclad alibi, being described as stone-cold drunk at the time of the crime, Anderson was later arrested on charges in association with Kumra's death. He faced the possibility of the death penalty, all because his DNA was found on the victim's fingernails. Forensic scientist Dr Georgina Meekin says that's the power of DNA evidence. But advances in the technology mean that we can't always take DNA evidence at face value. From the Medical Republic, I'm Lydia Hales and this is The Tea Room. Georgina is a senior lecturer at UTS and a forensic scientist who advises on cases in Australia, the UK, USA and Canada. She was the forensic scientist on the team that re-examined the evidence in a brutal double murder in England, which was explored in the BBC Two's Chillenden Murders documentary. Georgina, thanks for coming on the show. Before we get to the case of Lucas Anderson, can you tell us a bit about the history of DNA being detected at crime scenes? Hi Lydia, thank you for having me on the show. Yes, indeed. Well, we didn't really start DNA profiling until the mid-1980s. So it was in the early 1980s that a scientist in England, um, Sir Alec Jeffries, identified the science behind um, DNA profiling as we know it now. And he worked with scientists at the then Forensic Science Service to develop DNA profiling. But at that time, we needed a, a lot of DNA to get a DNA profile. So we'd need you know, a visible um, body fluid stain, be that blood, semen. And so at that time, it was relatively straightforward to be able to interpret whether the DNA had been deposited during the commission of the crime. So clearly, if you're dealing with a sexual assault and you have DNA from semen, um, you, you have a fairly good idea of how it got there. However, as we enter into the late um, 1990s, scientists at the Victoria Police here in Australia they identified that you could detect DNA um, from an item that you've handled, um, but also that if you handle an item someone else has handled, or if you shake someone's hand and, and then handle an item, you can indirectly transfer someone's DNA. And this became a little bit more problematic because it meant now that we could detect DNA um, from an unknown biological source, so it'd be essentially an invisible stain, um, but also we might start now needing to ask questions about how the DNA got there. And as we've progressed since the late 1990s, our technology has got more and more sensitive. And so essentially now we can detect DNA from a surface. Even if we have a visible body fluid stain, we might be detecting a mixture of DNA because we might be able to detect DNA that's, say, for example, being deposited beneath that body fluid on that surface. And so this raises a lot more questions, not only about what biological source that DNA is coming from, but also how did it get there? Was it at the crime scene before the crime even occurred? Um, or could the DNA have been transferred um, within the investigation of a crime scene, for example? So these are all questions that we now need to ask when we think about DNA evidence 
um, being recovered from a crime scene or from an exhibit. And essentially, we are now, um, you could say, victims of our own success because our technology is so sensitive, we've now raised a lot more additional questions. So, Georgina, when DNA is found at a crime scene, how do forensic scientists such as yourself establish that it was deposited directly or whether it was transferred there by someone else? Uh, this is a very good question. It's a very challenging um, question to answer. And it varies between jurisdictions uh, across the world and even jurisdictions within Australia. So essentially, when we are trying to answer that question, we need to think about what's the probability of seeing that DNA evidence that you've recovered if it got there directly um, through a manner that you know, the prosecution is saying versus what's the probability of seeing that evidence um, if it got there through um, other means such as indirect transfer, i.e. what the defence is saying happened. And in order to assess those probabilities, what we really need is data. We need to understand how DNA can be transferred. We need to understand how long it can persist for on surfaces. Um, what is um, the kind of background levels of DNA? You know, obviously we don't live in clean environments, although obviously um, in the COVID world, we now clean a lot more than perhaps we did beforehand. So perhaps we're now in a cleaner environment than we used to be. But there's still going to be DNA you know, on surfaces, on items before um, they're used um, within a, a crime environment. So we need to kind of understand these, um, what we refer to as dynamics of the DNA evidence. So Georgina, could you describe for us what one of these um, tests might look like in terms of how are some of the ways that you go about collecting data to help you deduce whether it was deposited directly or not? So the kinds of experiments that we want to do essentially fall into two categories. The first is when we want to sort of investigate and better understand the situations under which um, DNA can be indirectly transferred. So those kinds of ex experiments might involve a person shaking someone's hand and then handling an item. Um, and we do this a number of times and with different combinations of volunteers in order to understand the different circumstances um, under which DNA can be transferred in that manner. And that's a very simple example, but you can imagine we can then expand on that and create various different scenarios that might be relevant to um, criminal investigation. So, for example, um, with items of clothing, if someone's borrowed an item of clothing, worn it to commit a crime and then left it at the scene, we might want to try and recreate that and um, ask people to um, borrow previously worn items of clothing and see what DNA they leave on those items in order to see you know, what DNA are we getting from the most recent wearer versus what DNA are we getting from the person who actually wore the item before. So these are the kinds of experiments we need to um, conduct to better understand DNA transfer. But once we have a better understanding of the kinds of variables that are involved, we want to conduct experiments to generate the data for the probabilities that I mentioned. And in order to do that, we need to kind of do the same activities many times over. So you know, 20, 50 times over, even more if we could. In order to get the frequencies of the types of DNA profiles we might see and in order to be able to assess under what conditions would we get um, DNA being directly transferred versus indirectly transferred. 
So that sounds like a considerable amount of work going into these investigations and into these experiments. Um, Georgina, you've trained and worked in the UK and now you're here in Australia. I'm just curious to know how widely studied and applied um, are these investigations into DNA transference? So it's quite challenging. In an ideal world, it would be um, great if we could do experiments specifically within a case scenario for each and every case. And that way then we'd have data that's specifically relevant to that case. But obviously we can't do that. We don't have the money or the time, mostly the money, um, to do that. So what we need to do is rely on researchers like myself to um, do the kinds of um, experiments, generate the data that the practicing forensic scientists require. But the challenge we have is um, research funding. And so a decade ago, for example, there weren't that many scientists researching um, this, this field. Um, however, the importance and the need for this data has become very clear over the last, um, really the last couple of decades. And so more and more people are starting to research it. There are many more people here in Australia researching it. And this is because the scientists who identified that indirect DNA transfer is possible um, are still doing this research at Victoria Police and training new scientists to do this research and who continue to do so as well. Whereas in other countries, um, they perhaps aren't doing quite as much research. Um, it, it definitely varies between jurisdictions and commonly related to whether the forensic scientists within the jurisdiction are required within the courtroom to provide opinion on these matters. And in those jurisdictions where they are, um, there's more of this kind of research going on. And how might the possibility of, um, of indirect DNA transfer become an issue for health professionals? There are a number of ways in which DNA transfer may become an issue or a consideration um, for me medical practitioners. Like in any other profession, um, sexual uh, misconduct can occur or allegations of se sexual misconduct can be made. As such, when DNA, for example, male DNA is found um, in intimate areas on, on, on a female, under, you know, within other kinds of professions, that might be a more unusual occurrence, but within um, a medical examination, for example, there might be an innocent explanation for why that DNA is there. And so these considerations of DNA transfer must be considered when um, allegations of sexual misconduct are made. Uh, another area within um, the medical arena where DNA transfer is an important consideration is when um, deceased individuals are examined within the morgue by forensic pathologists. And we need to consider um, several routes of DNA transfer. Firstly, obviously, the pathologist needs to ensure that they're not contaminating the body when they're taking samples. So they need to make sure they're wearing the correct um, personal protective equipment and changing their gloves regularly and things like that. But also they need to ensure that there's no potential of DNA being transferred from um, an earlier body that was being examined, for example. And so therefore, the right cleaning procedures, both in terms of um, the laboratory space, the equipment, and also body bags, for example, 
all of these kinds of things, we need to make sure that there are procedures in place to minimise the chance of DNA transferring between uh, different bodies and different items. And going back to the case of Lucas Anderson in California, um, who we mentioned at the beginning of the show, I think he was jailed for about five months because his DNA was found on the victim, um, despite him being in the hospital at the time that that death occurred. Can you tell us how do they think his DNA ended up on um, on the dead man? So as I understand it, um, Lucas Anderson um, collapsed in the streets through intoxication and paramedics attended him there and took him to the hospital. It turns out that it was the same paramedics who then went to the crime scene and examined uh, Ravi Skumar and obviously tried to resuscitate him um, and doing so, they believe that DNA was transferred from Lucas Anderson via the paramedics to the fingernails on the deceased. And, and what they think was the actual culprit in this, for want of a better word, is um, the device that's used to measure oxygen saturation in the blood. It's that little device that clips on the end of a finger. And they think that perhaps that, say, that device picked up DNA from the finger of Lucas Anderson and transferred it to the fingernails of Ravish Kumar. Georgina, speaking to you, I have to say that I am a lot more conscious of everything I'm touching <laughs> and where my DNA might be travelling to. How often do you think about this? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I actually try not to, let's be honest. Um, I actually used to work <laughs> in microbiology as well, and, and, and I think you can overthink these things. Although the irony of that is that right now in the COVID world, we are thinking about this a lot because we obviously want to wash our hands regularly and sanitize to make sure that we're not um, picking up any potential traces of the virus. And so by doing so, we're also thinking about, uh, perhaps not consciously, but with not um, thinking about not transferring uh, other DNA on, onwards as well. Mm. And you did mention um, at, at one point earlier that um, certainly COVID might be having a bit of an impact on, on how these things, I mean, certainly we are more conscious of how um, things are spread, such as viruses. Um, so maybe it will be having an impact on DNA transfer as well. I'm curious to see this actually as to whether um, more research that's you know happening within this field like now especially looking at background levels of DNA whether that has an impact whether we whether we, there's now less DNA um, on surfaces because they're being cleaned more frequently whether that actually makes a difference um, I'd be interested to see in terms of the DNA profiles that are encountered within casework, whether there are fewer mixtures now because uh, items and surfaces are being cleaned more regularly. I, I don't have an answer to this at the moment, but I'd be curious to, to investigate this further. Georgina, it's been really interesting speaking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much, Lydia, for inviting me.